polyhydramnios or hydramnios is an abnormal increase in the volume of amniotic fluid. Identification of polyhydramnios should prompt a search for an underlying etiology. Although most cases of mild poly are idiopathic, the two most common pathological causes are maternal diabetes and fetal anomalies, some of which can be associated with genetic syndromes. In this podcast, we're going to cover the topic of polyhydramnios, which is the SMFM console series number 46. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Amniotic fluid can be assessed with ultrasound using one of two semi-quantitative methods, the single deepest vertical pocket of amniotic fluid, which defines polyhydramnios as greater than 8 centimeters, or the amniotic fluid index defines poly as greater than 24 millimeters. With twin gestations, polyhydramnios is more common and occurs primarily due to complications of monochorionic placentation. With twin pregnancies, the deepest vertical pocket is used. When no etiology for the excess amniotic fluid is identified, polyhydramnios is termed idiopathic. Idiopathic poly is a diagnosis of exclusion, and a predisposing condition may become evident with advancing gestation or after delivery. So, polyhydramnios with no identifiable cause in the prenatal period may also be referred to as unexplained until after delivery because at that time, the reason may become clear. Affected women with poly are more likely to undergo cesarean delivery and to have infants with a birth weight greater than 4,000 grams. There is also a risk of identification of an underlying fetal abnormality or even a genetic syndrome after birth, and this varies with the degree of polyhydramnios. Now let's get back quickly onto how amniotic fluid volume is determined because remember we've said that there's two different types. The deep vertical pocket which defines poly as greater than 8 centimeters or the AFI which defines polyhydramnios as greater than 24 centimeters. Now there's some controversy in the literature whether the AFI should be 25 or 24 for poly. But the truth is, most use 24 centimeters because that exceeds the 97.5th percentile for all gestational ages between 20 weeks and 42 weeks. Okay, now here's a clinical pearl because each method, deepest vertical pocket or AFI, each has its benefits and its limitations. For example, the use of AFI can lead to an overdiagnosis of too low fluid oligohydramnios. However, it's postulated that deep vertical pocket may lead to an overdiagnosis of polyhydramnios. So again, nothing's free. However, everybody agrees that further research into the optimal method for diagnosis of poly is still needed. Nonetheless, the SMFM recommends that if you're going to use the deepest vertical pocket to use 8 centimeters as a cutoff for excessive fluid and an AFI value of greater than 24 for excess fluid. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. The degree of polyhydramnios is frequently categorized as mild, moderate, or severe. Based on AFI, that's a value of between 24 and 29 for mild, moderate is 30 to 34.9 centimeters, and severe poly is greater than 35 centimeters. For a deepest vertical pocket, mild poly is defined as between 8 and 11 centimeters, moderate is 12 to 15 centimeters, and severe is greater than 16 centimeters respectfully. Now, using these definitions, mild poly accounts for about 70% of cases, moderate poly about 20%, and thankfully, severe poly occurs in less than 15% of all cases. All right, now here's a clinical pearl. In pregnancies with an identified underlying etiology, the degree of polyhydramnios is associated with the increased likelihood of preterm delivery, small for gestational age infant, macrosomia, and perinatal mortality. Okay, let's come back and talk about possible causes of polyhydramnios. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Although most cases of poly are mild and idiopathic, when an etiology is identified, it is most commonly due to a fetal anomaly or maternal diabetes. Many of the fetal abnormalities associated with poly impair swallowing, like central nervous system abnormalities, cleft palate, micrognathia, or abnormalities that compress the trachea or obstruct the GI tract. Fetal abnormalities that cause high-output cardiac states can also lead to poly and are often associated with non-immune hydropes fatalis. Some of these examples include sacrococcygeal teratomas, placental chorioangiomas, and other vascular lesions, or severe cardiac abnormalities like Epstein's anomaly or tetralogy of Fallot can also be associated with the condition. Once again, small placental core angiomas are relatively common and they rarely cause pregnancy complications, but large greater than 5 centimeters core angiomas have been associated with non-immune hydropes fatalis and poly, so it's important to remember to always send the placenta in cases of polyhydramnios, especially when it's moderate or severe. Now that's easy to figure out that in a child that sonographically has an abnormality or there's a gross placental lesion, that can help explain the cause of poly. But in addition to maternal diabetes, other potential causes of apparently isolated poly in a structurally normal fetus include alloimmunization and the potential for congenital infection. All right, so this brings us into the potential workup of polyhydramnios. The initial evaluation for poly involves targeted ultrasound to assess for fetal abnormalities. It's important to assess fetal growth because idiopathic poly may be associated with macrosomia as well as fetal growth restriction associated with poly presents a higher risk for an underlying fetal abnormality, including trisomy 13, or 18. Now, in most cases of idiopathic mild poly with normal diabetes screening, this evaluation is adequate. 
in a structurally normal fetus with mild poly, consideration should be given to causes like diabetes, alloimmunization, and potentially congenital infection. Routine prenatal care already includes screening for diabetes and alloimmunization as well as tests for syphilis, so that's a good start. Now, although there are no data to support a benefit for rescreening for gestational diabetes, it may be considered when poly is identified in the third trimester or one month has passed since diabetes screening was completed. Congenital infection usually presents with additional sonographic findings. These can include non-immune hydropes, hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, or placentamegaly. So in cases of poly associated with non-immune hydropes, or there's additional sonographic features, evaluation for fetal anemia and congenital infection is recommended. Severe poly that presents earlier in gestation should raise a greater concern for an underlying etiology. In cases of severe poly, especially early in gestation, it's important to review the medical and the family history in addition to obtaining that detailed ultrasound exam. All right, now it should be remembered, of course, that not all abnormalities can be detected by ultrasound, and certainly not in every case. Specifically, fetal esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula are among the most common abnormalities associated with poly. These abnormalities may be difficult to diagnose by ultrasound, but should be suspected in cases in which the fetal stomach is visualized but is very small. Disorders associated with apparently isolated poly can include certain genetic syndromes for which there may not be sonographic findings or a screening or diagnostic test available. That's why a lot of these, quote, idiopathic, end quote, cases actually can be found to have a diagnosis after birth. Now, currently, there is no data to support diagnostic amnio for apparently isolated poly, although remember that ACOG says that amnio with chromosomal microarray should be made available to all pregnant women. Now, with severe poly, especially with decreased fetal movement, genetic counseling and consideration of testing for neurological disorders like congenital myotonic dystrophy should be considered. The underlying risk that a structural or a genetic abnormality will be discovered postnatally in a pregnancy associated with apparently idiopathic poly ranges from 9% in the neonatal period to as high as 28% when infants were followed up to one year of age. So it's important to counsel these patients with this information that even when something does not look to be abnormal with the baby with the fetus onographically, sometimes a diagnosis can be delayed up to 28% in the first year. In one study, the residual risk that an abnormality would be detected in the immediate neonatal period ranged from 1% with mild poly to greater than 10% with severe poly. So that's the clinical pearl. We don't have to get our patients all worked up unnecessarily for cases of mild that are otherwise idiopathic cases, but with severe poly, that risk does increase. A quick word about prenatal or antepartum treatment for poly. The SMFM does recognize that amnio reduction should be considered only for the indication of severe maternal discomfort, dyspnea, or both, and in the setting specifically for severe polyhydramnios. Again, don't go trying to drain out fluid for mild cases of poly.
SMFM states that if the patient is having significant discomfort and the poly is severe, then amnio reduction can be considered. The SMFM also has a statement regarding the use of indomethacin. Indocin or indomethacin, of course, is often used for tocolysis, but it can decrease fetal urine production. So because of that reduction in fetal urine, some have questioned or some have advocated the use of indomethacin in case of fetal poly to try to reduce the fetal contribution to the amniotic fluid. However, the SMFM states, due to reported neonatal complications and in the absence of data on improved maternal or neonatal outcomes, the SMFM recommends that indomethacin not be used for the sole purpose of decreasing amniotic fluid in the setting of poly. Lastly, as we wrap up our section on the prenatal or the antepartum care of poly, the SMFM states that antenatal fetal surveillance is not required for the sole indication of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. The most recent guidance from the American College of OBGYN on antepartum fetal surveillance does not specifically address isolated poly or list it as an indication for surveillance. Although antepartum surveillance is often performed in this setting, and I understand that reasoning, there's actually no data to suggest that such assessment decreases perinatal mortality. Similarly, there's no data to suggest that induction of labor or iatrogenic preterm delivery are associated with improved outcomes in the setting of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. So the FMFM does not advise induction of labor before 39 weeks in these cases of mild, seemingly idiopathic poly. All right, let's clarify this one more time because ACOG's committee opinion number 764 does reference medically indicated late preterm and early term deliveries, and it does have polyhydramnios on that list. But once again, even in that committee opinion, polyhydramnios is still referenced as a delivery at full term, that's 39 weeks. Now, it's important to know, though, that in this committee opinion, ACOG doesn't actually stratify or make the distinction between mild, moderate, or severe poly. Now, it is some expert opinion, and some would consider it reasonable, that in patients that have severe poly, that have severe maternal morbidity or discomfort, a lot of symptomatology, then in those patients, that elective induction in the late preterm period is considered reasonable. So not everybody agrees with committee opinion 764, because ACOG doesn't make, again, that distinction between mild, moderate, and severe cases. But overall, in case you're asked on the oral boards, ACOG does say that polyhydramnios, that's otherwise uncomplicated, can have delivery at 39 weeks. All right, podcast family, you know I don't like my podcast to go more than 14 or 15 minutes because, well, it's just hard to listen to a podcast for that long. So in our next session, we will cover the intrapartum management of polyhydramnios. Yeah, we're not done yet, but we're going to stop here for now. We've covered basic background, the workup, and the prenatal or the antepartum management of this condition. Now, here's a quick spoiler. Remember that these patients are at increased risk of C-section. 
But why is that? Well, we'll talk about that in the next section. And what about amniotomy or artificial rupture of membranes? Can that be done in this case? Well, we'll talk about that in the next section as well. Once again, thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time for part two of Polyhydramnios on Clinical Pearls.